Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My next guest is a Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter who shot to stardom with the silky smash hit Like a Star, which was followed by an eponymous debut album that sold four million copies. Over the course of her career, she's released three critically acclaimed albums, earned two Grammy Awards, two MOBOs, and been nominated for countless others. This month, she made a comeback with her years-in-the-making art record, Black Rainbows, a musical project featuring songs, a book, live performances, visuals, lectures and exhibitions. You name it. Let's take a listen. New York transit queen, New York transit queen, New York transit queen, little over 17. Stirring stuff. Well, earlier I caught up with Corinne and asked why she chose to create this multi-dimensional project. I just felt like the record wasn't enough to contain all of these stories. I first went to Stony Island Arts Bank in 2017 and I walked through the doors of this gothic bank from the 1920s and I was just amazed at what I saw, this huge volume of um, black literature, more than 16,000 books that had been submitted to the Ebony and Jet magazine makers, the Johnson family. Um, And they are on this range of block subjects from everything from Ethiopia, Egypt, you know, the Black Pioneers going west, mask, dance since the 15th century, Um, you know, autobiographies, yearbooks, recipe books, just everything. And then on the next floor up, you go through these drawers and cabinets and unwrap things wrapped in tissue paper. And it's magazine articles, it's newspaper articles from the 1850s, it's um, they're kind of trinkets and problematic objects from America's past. There's postcards, there's photographs, there's... Um, and and there's what was the... it, I, I suppose, what was it that you found so engaging? I mean, obviously, it's it's centuries of black history. Uh, was that something that you hadn't really encountered uh, until that moment? Because obviously, as a woman and then as a black woman... Um, you know, there is a sense that that a lot of one's past isn't where it should be. Absolutely. So I felt like in my search for lots of information and answers on a variety of things around Black diaspora and history, I might have met at my school or even at university or even in bookshops. I might have felt like I'd reached the limit of the information that there was available. So I might say, I'd really love to see photographs of this or that or know more about the all black towns of the west and the people would say oh that's just not documented oh there isn't there isn't evidence of that oh it's that might be history. mythical not sure yeah it's it's oral exactly it's oral history it's hidden but actually it turns out this history is not hidden that it's silenced and erased but there are places that have records of um so many documents so many newspaper articles so many uh adverts from the 1950s for family photographs so much that kind of documents and fills in uh fills in some answers for me and it's all done in this most beautiful way I was saying before when I might have looked on black literature and subjects I might go to a library in Leeds and it might be the sort of place where 
people are going to get a prescription and they're also might be going to get the housing benefit and there might also be some posters about I don't know getting injections or but here it's in this beautiful sort of elevated art space you know this double height library where it's all been brought together by this visual artist the Astor Gates you know there's sound suits from Nick Cave the artist on the walls there are various exhibitions happening in and out of the building so it's so just it feels it's, like it's a, black history in this kind of in this elevated and academic way which I haven't been around before and when I was in there with the Astor in this building it's kind of cathedral to black art when I was in there he said oh you should do a concert in here but when I left all I felt was that these stories these various stories of people who were looking out with photographs at me or newspaper articles or or objects I felt like they were telling me their story and it was kind of it was it was my obsession to fill in those stories to uh, to respond to them to tell them and did it feel like that when you were actually writing the songs for the album as well i mean did you feel like a sort of cipher for other people's stories absolutely it was such a pleasure for me because so much of my work today has been about my own experience you know mostly i'm talking about an album it's these are my thoughts my feelings my experiences you know and people always think it's pages pulled from a diary and so, but this was so different because I was able to look at a photograph of a, you know, there's this brilliant woman, uh, Audrey Smoltz, who's won this beauty competition and she's 17 years old and she's hanging off the back of this fire truck with this cheeky expression on her face. And I could think, you know, who is she? What's this competition? I dug deeper into it and found it was a beauty competition. It was an all black competition because its equivalent Miss Subways wasn't open to black women in the 50s in America, in New York. So there's these amazing young women who are winning this beauty competition, but Audrey Smuts is an artist. She took her art book with her and showed her drawings. That's how she won. And I just thought, who is this rebel raiser, you know, this hell raiser? And I was able to uh, meet her. You know, she's in her 80s now. She's had this incredible life and travelled all around the world. She was on Wall Street. She's... Um, she was Mrs. Johnson's right-hand woman when they would fly to Paris and get couture and bring it back to America and introduce it to these all these different African-American sort of local buildings in the Ebony Fashion Fair. So I think it was important for me to, yeah, to, to make sure these stories were known and to, it was nice for me to be able to get out of the way, but like I was getting out of the way and they were just sort of chattering in the background and all I had to do was kind of sing it out. It's interesting you say that. I was talking to a travel writer the other day, Lois Price, and she was talking about how each of her books is a sort of an evolution in terms of, you know, who she's becoming as she grows older. And, you know, her first one was all about Mimi going on this trip, Lois at last, Lois unleashed, you know. And then the, the next book was actually looking beyond herself at what was around her and, and, and so on and so forth. I wonder if the same thing happens when you make albums, that each one is a a snapshot in a way of who you are at that moment in time. They really are. I mean, that's why I call them, they're a record, right? They're sort of a record of that particular moment. And when I was making this album, I always thought of it as as a side project. I thought, this is the way I can be the most free. It's not going to be my record. It's not going to be my name. It's going to be a side project called Black Rainbows. And that meant that I was able to really dream and and paint with this wider range of colours, you know, to be on this rainbow-like spectrum. So I was able to bring punk and I was able to bring, you know, Afrofuturist music and 
or piano ballads and singing an operatic style or, or sing a 1950s song and be all enunciating like Eartha Kitt. And I, I wanted to be able to bring all this forth. And I thought, well, I don't have to then think about, is this a catchy chorus? Is this going to get played on the radio? And so that's why one of the songs is less than two minutes and another song is almost nine minutes and they're just they're rangy you know and and it was only really when I when I saw the artwork and saw my name was on it and I thought actually it makes sense that I was able to then own and say this isn't this is my record but it's not my own stories there but then it's my lens right it's my brain so it's what these what these tales, how these tales have impacted me, they've kind of gone into my mind and come back out. So, you know, they always say you can never get very far away from yourself. But I feel like my own interests and obsessions have led my research. I am interested in women. I'm interested in young women. I'm interested in young people. I'm interested in in black people and these and these silenced and hidden stories. You know, when I came across this book, Hard Art, and it's all these young black kids digging this really hard rock music in in Washington DC in the in the 1970s I just think oh I I've never seen photographs like this of you know the band Bad Brains playing and seeing like a seven-year-old girl on the front row just with this massive gleeful expression a black a young black girl if we don't share stories wider we don't see ourselves reflected in culture it it does narrow and and make our world smaller and I think when I was in my indie band, I didn't see loads of photos of, of, you know, black people in rock music. And I definitely didn't see loads of photos of a black audience in glee at this kind of spitty, shouty punk. And I mean, there's a big contrast, isn't there, to growing up in, in Leeds and going to an amazing state-of-the-art museum celebrating everything about uh, black culture, which obviously wouldn't have existed 50 years ago, um, you know, probably only built in the last 20, I imagine. Um, how much did you feel on an emotional level that you'd somehow missed out on part of everything to do with who you were? I think... I feel like I'm lucky to be from Leeds. You know, Leeds has a big Caribbean community and Leeds has the biggest publisher of Caribbean literature outside of um, the Caribbean. It has People Tree Press and it has the Carnival, which is the oldest West Indian carnival in Europe. So it had these touchstones of sort of, of blackness and celebrating black history. So I felt like I was able to grow up around this black diaspora in music and culture and food, but definitely in terms of loads and loads of... Um, loads of objects and loads of uh, evidence of the historic black stories. There was so much more in Chicago. There was, there was so much more, you know, Chicago is such a huge center of, um, of black life because so many uh, people from the South came up to Chicago. It's the biggest internal migration that's ever happened in the U S. Do you feel that, um, I mean, I just wonder if you feel in this country, I mean, you've always been involved in jazz, which obviously is, 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 is black music to start with. And, um, but do you feel that, that somehow in this country we're not moving as fast as America? I mean, I know that you've been hugely embraced in the US. You've, you've, you've performed at the White House. Michelle Obama had you on her playlist. I mean, there can be no greater compliment, can there? 
Um, so, so is there a sense as well that that this is a whole new world out there that that actually we've got to catch up with in this country? Because you've always been, you know, reasonably politicized in your career and and in your uh, opinions, and it feels like there's this. Damascene thing going on, but it's in very much in contrast as well. I mean, you know, we could make the mistake of making America sound like it's a brilliant, you know, in in venerating black culture, but actually at the same time, you movements like Black Lives Matter exist for a reason. So there's two very different、mm. Americas existing there, aren't there? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. There are two different Americas, and that was the most fascinating thing I think about the Arts Bank. You know, going through every copy of Ebony magazine that's been made is in the Arts Bank, and they've been leather bound and gold embossed. They're being held up as great literature, and so you go through these these tomes on Black culture, and you find stories that were, I, I guess, that have been perceived as being hidden stories. I think of that film Hidden Figures about the Black women that were at NASA. Which I remember when it came out, and it almost it seemed to people as though is this revisionist history? What what is this? But it was just looking at the black women who factually and actually worked at NASA in the fifties and sixties. But of course, if you open a copy of Ebony magazine from that time, we find interviews with these women, we find photographs of these women, we find quotes from them. So you're right in saying it's two different Americas. Black people in America knew that. That this story was happening, but for whatever reason, for all the reasons we know about, those people's stories weren't part of the then part of the school curriculum, then part of wider popular culture, weren't in Life magazine, for for example, and didn't go. The stories didn't go further and wider. So I think what's happening now is there's been more attention paid to black stories, but I think amongst black people themselves, these this information has been carried. Whether it's been carried through photos or stories, or orally, or through songs, or that those stories have remained intact, and I think there's just、um, now there's so much more time and intention to, to sort of, to look at them. But I think another thing that happens in America is that there are private individuals who put in their money. There's still a kind of what we had in the UK in the Victorian era. You know, we have a building near us that salts mill, Titus Salt, the industrialist. Wants to get into heaven and wants to show himself to be a, a refined man, so he invests heavily in the arts. I think we have moved away from that in this country, and we ex- we want and expect and hope that the government will be the sort of holder of these important archives. But of course, we've seen from、um, even what happened with Windrush. Not not only are they not the holder and treasurer of black archives, but they're losing important information. Uh, you know, sometimes the passports and paperwork of of the of the people who live here came here from the Caribbean. So I think, ironically, sometimes if the government has less of an interest, like it has in America, there's a there's still that 
philanthropic um, alignment where wealthy individuals want to be adjacent to culture to to embolden themselves like a Ford Foundation or, or, or all of those mm. those industrialists, their time is nearer and their work seems to be in art, you know, or you think of the Prada Foundation in Italy, you know, lots of lots of individual foundations are doing more than governments. They probably have more money and we sort of have to look to them and, and continue to encourage people with wealth to reinvest. I, I think your your dad is from St. Kitts, is he is is he Yes, not? that's right. Yeah. So did you feel personally invested when that whole Windrush scandal emerged and, and the extent to which those people who'd moved here with, you know, the promise of all kinds of things? I mean, how much did that impact on you emotionally? Because we can look at it and see it as a total injustice, but perhaps the emotional engagement is different. Yeah, I I, I really felt, um, I really felt the connection with that, that that you could have this invitation from your mother country. You know, so many of the Caribbeans felt themselves to be um, more British than the British. You know, in their geography lessons, they would learn about the rivers of England. You know, they they were looking forward to coming and having crumpets and toast. And I think, um, but a passport itself is such a flimsy and ephemeral thing. You know, I remember when my dad sent back his passport, you know, with a photograph in of when he was 14, he, he sent his passport to get upgraded and the old passport never came back. But that passport to us was kind of a link to him coming from St. Kitts, you know, it had the stamp in and it had the little photograph of him when he was a kid. And now we know how those records were held. But I think, you know, to think of people's grandparents who came as a child, you know, in, with with a cardigan on, you know, they didn't even own a coat and they'd grown up and worked here to sort of go to a family wedding in Jamaica and then find you can't get back in because there's no record that you've lived there. I mean, it just must have been terrifying for people or people being turned down for cancer treatment. And you realise, yeah, there's, there hasn't been... And then, you know, Pretty Patel's comment about a culture of grievance, you know, as though there's a Caribbean... The, the Caribbeans are kind of just making a fuss about nothing and should should kind of keep it to themselves. Yeah. You know, I thought that was so, it was so telling and so telling of, you know, unfortunately our, our government is, seems to be so detached from the everyday people, the working people, so much disinterest in the poorest people, a lot of blame about um, how people end up where they do. And not, instead of thinking that so much, uh, so much about the wealth in this country is, is um, hereditary. So, yeah, I mean, America and the UK are impossible to compare places, but um, yeah, there seems to be. Um, if we if we're relying on the government to support the arts, we will maybe be disappointed here. I'm fascinated by uh, the fact that as your life has become, you know, settled, you know, you've got two daughters, you've got your husband, you who you also work with uh, as a musician from time to time, and and all of those things that 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 rather than explore that part of your life, it, it seems to have given you a platform to like just open up completely to everything else. Is that what it feels like, that that sort of security, that that bedrock of family allows you to, to be freer almost? Absolutely. I think that, you know, having those questions answered, I mean, for me, having a family and having a partner is so, it's a double blessing for me because, you know, you as you probably know, it was, when I lost my first husband in 2008, when I was 29, he was 31. 
And that really felt to me like the end of my life. And I sort of assessed my life from that point and thought, well, I've had a really good life. You know, I've, I've had this happy childhood and I've had this career and I've had this success. And it sort of felt now there's nothing else to do. So sort of watch the clock, you know, and I, and I felt terrified of the future because I thought it just seemed like a wasteland. And then as time went by, to be able to see these sort of shoots coming here and coming there and to be able to, you know, come back, it, incredible friends around me and family, and then even to find a romance. And then, you know, I, I thought, I'm 29, I'll never be able to have children because how would I even meet someone in time to then have, you know, I was really looking. I had, you had my kids in my late 30s and early 40s, and that, again, was something you just can't, you can't sort of guarantee. And so I feel incredibly lucky to have this this thing that I wanted this this to be in the place where I wanted and we do all travel around the world together as a kind of traveling circus and you know my mum comes too and so I feel this big sense of kind of maturity and experience and and like you say stability to then be able to artistically take more risks and be more free and think you know what if I allow my interests and obsessions you know my interest in this weird building and all this weird stuff and this diaspora and history you know can I really write a song about the rock churches of Lalibela in Ethiopia yes and I'm going to and here it is you know so <laughs> I, I feel and also encountering artists you know namely Theaster Gates who whose practice is so diverse everything from reclaiming buildings that the government's going to tear down you know saving a school to making things out of massive things out of clay to to um you know everything he does is a, is an artwork he did a whole exhibition where I think a friend of his had passed away and so he cut up all his clothes all of his clothes every suit every t-shirt and made them into these sort of winds I think these these um kind of scarf neckties and that was his art you know so just to have someone who thinks everything you make, everything you do is making and all your your creativity can go across every aspect of your life. That's really spoken to me. That's been the thing in the building that's transformed the way I think about making stuff and making music. 